a Jew kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. Fire this fucker up. What is going okay. on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 483. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles. We're tackling everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're going into the wonderful warped mind of Martin Kessler, the host of Flixwise Canada. And we're going to be talking about, I guess, what's the best way to describe it? It's like Slavic folklore slash fantasy slash horror in the context right. of some Czech and Ukrainian film. But Mr. Kessler, welcome back to Wrong Real. Thank you. Good to be back. I, I think you sort of pitched this as like folk to- folklore fairy tale Slavic horror movies. So that's... Uh... <laughs> I came back with the three we're going to be talking about. Yeah, well, what's cool about this topic, and we've talked about this before in the context of like some science fiction, how <laughs> the Eastern European tradition of genre, whether it's fantasy, horror, sci-fi, whatever, is different from the Western world. And it's so refreshingly exciting just and new to tackle some of these kinds of movies because I feel like... In the West, we have so many, we have far too many rules. Like if you watch a werewolf movie, even if you've never seen mm-hmm. one, you kind of know what the rules are. Like, oh, well, silver will kill it, blah, blah, blah. It comes out of the full moon. But like, the, the rules are so well established. Whereas once you go into the world of Eastern European, Slavic folklore, horror, fantasy, etc., suddenly the rule book gets thrown out the window. And it's very exciting if you're a fan of this world to have a kind of a new playbook to be working with. So I always love these little adventures of ours into these, kind of, these kinds of films. For sure. I think this does feel kind of in line with uh, even some of the Borovchek films we talked about or the Marcel Yankovic. Like, uh, you know, they're a little bit different, but um, I think for people who like those past episodes, this is going to be a good one. Absolutely. Well, before we dive into these three flicks you've chosen for us, tell people out there who you are, what you've been up to, all those good things. Um, usually I'm over on FlixWise talking there. We just had a new episode go up on... Fantomas, the classic silent serials with um, Dave Eves and Emma Gerard. So people might want to check that out. Making movies, um, usually on Twitter, <laughs> saying things at Movie Kessler. That's about it for me. Now, when it comes to your filmmaking endeavors right now, what have you been occupying yourself with? You, you writing, editing, shooting? What are you up to? Uh, well, I finished a little documentary a while ago, and I'm talking to my producer about the next one. So I'm kind of in between projects, which is a good time for going on long hikes and playing Donkey Kong. <laughs> nice. Well, also, I saw you like basically live tweeting a lot of your progress in a bunch of different games recently. Tell me about this Alien game that you were playing. Oh, uh, Alien Isolation. That was a lot of fun. That's um, survival horror, alien game. What I really like about it is they kind of got the atmosphere of the first film down because most Alien video games, it's like the second film where you're going around as a space marine shooting up a bunch of them. And uh, Alien Isolation, there's just the one alien and... They make it tense and scary, and um, I, I don't know. I was really into it. I, I liked how they pulled off the atmosphere for that game, so that was a good... Well, horror games, I don't play them all that frequently, but whenever I do, mm-hmm. I'm always floored by how fucking terrifying they are. Because it's one thing to <laughs> watch scary. a horror movie and you're worried on someone else's behalf. It's another thing when something comes out and grabs you and your controller vibrates. It scares yep. the fucking shit out of you. And it's so much more intense than most <laughs> horror There movies. was an option when I was first starting up the game. They said, well, like, uh, you know, you can have it set so that your microphone detects if you make any noise and the alien will find you like oh, listening Jesus. to you playing the game i'm like hell no i can't handle that <laughs> it's wow bad enough as it is 
Well, but, just think uh, about it, here we are, 2019, and with games become, where they are. I can only imagine how much more intense they're going to get in the years to come. But yeah, I haven't been playing anything super new recently. The, the newest game I've been playing as of late is Witcher 3. I'm, I'm trying to get up to speed on the, the whole Witcher world before the Netflix show. So I've read the first two collections of short stories by Andrzej Sapkowski, I think is how you say his name. And I believe he's also Czech, but oh no, he's Polish. He's from Poland. Okay. And he but I'm also about, killing vampires and things, right? That's... Uh, well, he his whole thing—it's a medieval fantasy environment, and the Witchers are starting to basically become—they're—they're they're losing their usefulness because the modern world is creeping in, humanity's taking over. So, the Witchers historically would hunt certain types of creatures in order to make a town or a village or whatever the, the area is safe for for human beings. But they've kind of almost done their job too well. But also witchers are frowned upon and like people are disgusted by them, like they're social outcasts. Mm. But the, the main character, Geralt, he's obviously the star of the all, I guess there are five novels and two collections of short stories, as well as three games. So I played Witcher 3, as well as the downloadable content, and it was just one of the most fun games I've ever played in my life. I, I was blown away. But I'm really enjoying the fiction. The fiction started back in the 90s, and I know the show is largely based on the fiction, not the games, which has caused a schism in the Witcher community because most Witcher fans today are probably because of the games. Right. But there's a lot more source material to work with if you're working with the fiction, if you're trying to create a, a series of television shows. In any case, so I've been getting up to speed on that. So Witcher 3 was a killer game, but I've also been sucked back into the world of uh, Dark Souls Remastered because no matter, <laughs> no matter how much time goes by, if it's been like six, nine, 12 months or whatever, I just like, oh, let's let's do a strength build. Let's do a dex build. And I'm just playing. The, and then, so now I'm in New Game Plus 2 and just shamelessly playing through this game that I've devoted far too much time to. But I can't help it because I love it. I keep coming back to Dark Souls. Like, even after beating uh, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, I'm like, ah, like, I kind of like Dark Souls better. Like, I, I, that's just the one. That's the classic. That's the well, masterpiece. Well, so. drove me back because I got so good at parrying in yeah. Sekiro. I was like, well, shit. I never you do a dex build. And, yeah, I was like, I was never yeah. that good at parrying when I played Dark Souls. Let's try it again. And now, when you play Dark Souls with your Sekiro skills and knowing how to parry, it changes the fights entirely. Like, oh my god, like I am so much more badass now and can fuck people up so much more because <laughs> I can just stand in front of people and parry their attacks. And, and, and anyway, so it's, it took, my Sekiro training totally changed the Dark Souls experience. Team. По мотивам одноименной повести Николая Гоголя. Гид. Сценарий и постановка под руководством известного режиссера Александра Птушко. В фильме Ви Наталья Варлей и Леонид Куравлев. Ведьма! Ей богу, ведьма!
новый фантастический фильм «Вей». Well, what's the best way to start slipping into the waters of these uh, three films? Should we just go chronologically, or what? What these are your picks? I'm gonna sure. leave, uh, leave it up to you. Chronologically works. Uh, I, well, the three we're going to be talking about it's uh, V, Valeria and her Week of Wonders, and Otisanek or Little Otik. And uh, uh, V, I guess that's the best place to start, maybe because that's the earliest one. It came out in 1967. Absolutely. And it's kind of an anomaly because there weren't really that many Soviet horror films. In fact, like some, some people say first. this is the only one, like, yeah. I, which I, like, I don't know how true that is. Like it sort of depends on your definition if you want to like squish it a bit, but, uh, and like there were also horror films from the Tsarist era. Like if you go back really early, like uh, including like there was an earlier version of the made in the silent era that's now lost. But uh, it's based on a Gogol story, and I, for like a long time, I kind of stayed away from Gogol because I don't like he gets lumped in with these, you know, capital G great Russian authors like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, and I had this like nightmare experience reading Anna Karenina, and uh, I just assumed it would be like kind of dry and weighty, and then I read Dead Souls, and it it really sucked me in, and. You know, I realized always oh, a sense of humor and like it's very actually easy to read. And uh, this is my first time reading the short story V, which the film is based on. But, you know, it's cool to see he also did a horror story. Uh, he did a couple of horror stories and like surreal stuff and just, I don't know. And he's not really like they call him, a, you know, great Russian author, but he, he's really Ukrainian. And, uh, you know, you can see when you watch V that it's uh, it's centered around this like monastery outside of Kiev. And now, it's... Mikhail would beat me about the head and face if I <laughs> to acknowledge this, but when it comes to Russia and Ukraine and when they've been combined and when they have not yeah. been, obviously during the USSR, they were one nation. Mm-hmm. At how, like, throughout well, human also history, during, like, like the last thousand Russia. years, has Ukraine and Russia more often than not been combined or more often than not separate? Or what, Give me some, some background on that. <laughs> uh, it, it depends who you ask, but like, you know, during this, Mikhail's you know, father, who's from <laughs> Kiev, what would he say? Uh, probably that like, you know, U- Ukraine was its own nation, but it was um, under Russian rule. Like that, that's probably the, the best way to describe it for most of its history. And, uh, you know, like still today, you can find Russian people who think like maybe Ukraine shouldn't be independent, uh, you know, that's that's an ongoing issue. Well, it reminds um, me a little heard... bit of like the maps of like the South China Sea. Like if you look at like a Chinese map sure. of Southeast Asia, it's different from like our official map, which obviously mm-hmm. has gotten some mm-hmm. movies in trouble lately. Like, like the car- cartoon Abominable uses the Chinese map, which includes like all these southeastern nations that are sovereign nations that are not part of China, but according <laughs> to China they are. And so these movies couldn't be released in like Malaysia and the Philippines and things like that. But it's right. just it's funny how depending upon one's point of view, the maps are different. Exactly. So it's uh, it's a matter of contention, but uh, I, I think. I don't know, like the, the Ukrainian stuff does have a distinct feel. It's its own language. It's like it's also Cyrillic writing, but it's a different written language. It, it like it's you know it's it's different. It's it's its own culture and 
All I know uh, is Mila Kunis, yeah. her family's from Ukraine, and she can speak Russian. And I'm like, all right, well, give us more of those girls, please. There's some press conference <laughs> once where they were making – somebody asked some question in Russian where they kind of started making fun of Justin Timberlake oh. for that movie where they hook up. She jumped in and she, yeah, she, she jumped in yeah. and started <laughs> fucking him up in Russian. I was like, that's the sexiest fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> right. And, like, there's also – like Russian Ukrainians, like I have a friend where like her family's from the Ukraine, but they speak Russian and like it, it gets kind of mixed up a little bit. You know, it's like when you had Czechoslovakia, like Czechs and Slovaks were different, but, uh, you know, it was sort of one nation for a while and then split off and then stuck back together. So, you know, it, it gets a little bit complicated what nation you identify as or what culture you might identify as if it's um, unified or whatever but like Gogol a lot of his stories are like very specifically Ukrainian uh, I was even reading like he um, when he sat down to write V he wrote his mother a letter where he's like tell me everything you can remember about like Ukrainian folklore and he just kind of tried to distill it all into this story and it, it was meant to be like very <laughs> Ukrainian in flavor I guess uh, that's sort of what he was going for Um and well, I love I guess when people do when people take something yeah. that's from like the oral tradition and they try to like codify it yeah. and put it all together. Like a lot of our earliest plays and like Greek myths, they'd been around for much longer, but then guys like Euripides or Homer or Aeschylus or whomever would come along, they say, Oh, well, I'm just gonna grab all these right. and put, put put them down on fucking paper so that they'll get preserved, but they'd been around for much longer. I mean, that's also true of uh Otisanek, which we're gonna be talking about also, where the like officially, it's based on a story that's written by um, Carl Urban, uh, KJ Urban, but he was like a folklorist, and he actually just tried to transcribe stories in the way that like the Brothers Grimm would try to just collect this folklore and make sure that the oral tradition had like a written version, and you know trying to write it down at a time when uh, like one. Czechs were under Austrian rule. Like there was this idea that like, oh, the, the Czech Czechs don't really have culture and the Czech language, it's like uh, for servants and milkmaids. And, uh, you know, there was this sort of response of like a cultural groundswell creating art and literature, music and poetry to kind of so like, say like, yeah, there is a culture. Fuck you. Uh, We've got Franz yeah, Kafka. Yeah. So, like yeah. that's kind of where the, <laughs> well, I mean, this is like a hundred years before Kafka but yeah, but if you've got Milos Forman and Franz Kafka to your name, right. you're doing just fine. But this was like a hundred years earlier, um, and that's kind of where the, the written version of Little Otik comes from. So, like, that's the background for that. And the the other one, uh, Valeria and her Week of Wonders, uh, it's based on an author who was like a surrealist, but like he also drew a lot on folklore, and he wrote in the 1930s. And like, you can just you know, it's it's an original story, but you can see where a lot of the folklore kind of spills in. And I thought it was interesting, like being written at a time when you already had movies like Nosferatu in existence. So, you know, like maybe you're thinking about a vampire differently than you would uh, than when you're reading V. And it's like she summons the vampires and werewolves, and you're like, well, these look nothing like what I expect a vampire. Because Nosferatu is based on it's an unofficial adaptation yeah. of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which right, obviously right. in the UK it was. They were distilling Slavic folklore stories through well, the English eye. It was eye. also like a, like a Western European perspective. It was also like a fear of Slavs and Eastern Europeans. Like the whole like, you know, Harry Potter Dracula thing. story. It's yeah. like, the, you know, this evil Westerner who's going to bring like 
you know, disease and vermin and like <laughs> sexuality into this like repressed Western European society. So like that's kind of the perspective that Dracula was written at. And it's a little bit different in Eastern Europe, I guess. Like, you know, there's a different subtext to that. Uh, there's a film I saw at TIFF this year called The Painted Bird, which was based on a novel by, I think it's the same author who did Being There, like gotcha. the Peter Sellers movie, except maybe not because some people say he plagiarized this. Uh, I'd never read the novel, but it's about a Jewish boy in Europe who goes to stay with his mother. I think like rural rural Moravia, where it looks almost like in the medieval period. Like there's a part where you're thinking like, oh, like what century is this? And then an uh, airplane goes by and you realize like, okay, it's World War II era. And he's worried that he's going to be found out and he kind of ends up on his own. And I won't spoil too much for people, but like he's in this really, really kind of backwards village. And, you know, a bunch of villagers capture him and they say, we know what you are. And you think, oh, no, they're going to realize he's he's Jewish and hand him over to Germans or something. And they say, we know what you are. You're a vampire. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, I took a Slavic folklore (laughs) class at UVA. And one thing that kind of caught me off guard is I went into it thinking, oh, well, every single story we read is going to be like a a cool kind of Dracula story, never realizing that the vampire tradition in Eastern Europe is quite different. Like all of our Western vampire movies are basically loosely based upon the rules that have been codified and set up by like the Todd Browning Dracula, which is obviously based on the play, which is based on the novel, but that's kind of for the last hundred years, dominated our Western perspective of what a vampire story is supposed to be. Even if you're watching Near Dark, like kind of the rules never really change. But as we started going into these stories, all the rules were different, like just ways how they would like bury people vertically upside down if they thought they were a vampire. If they were born with like a little vestigial organ on their forehead, that was like a sign you might be a vampire. It was all these things I was totally unfamiliar with. Maybe it's a ferret in disguise. And there's yeah. also like slight variations depending on like which culture you go. Like I know um, like I, when I was a kid, I remember like, you know, hearing stories about Yeshi Baba and Shert and Vodnik. And it's like, uh, you know, I, I don't know if other people know about these things. But then you sort of realize like, oh, OK, like, you know, the Russian version or Ukrainian version of Yeshi Baba, it's uh, Baba Yaga. Which um, which I know from Dungeons and Dragons. They actually right, had the stats I, I for Baba Yaga's hut Hellboy, in but... Dungeons and Dragons with the chicken legs, and yeah. yeah, I remember a friend of mine was obsessed with it. But then, of course, then it pops up in like the Hellboy comics and things like that. And yeah, yeah, uh, you know, so you sort of like, oh, okay, like people might not know that particular version, but they know like a variation of it. Or even I remember when the the Krampus movie came out, and for a while people were talking about Krampus. Like I know, like it was never. Like, the Czech version, it's not that, it's not Krampus, but there's also, like, oh, yeah, Czech Christmas, if you're bad, like, a devil's going to put you in a sack and beat you with a stick. So, you know, like, I I think some people over here just never hear, you know, these versions of folklore, and then, like, if it becomes popularized or somebody makes a movie about it, then, like, people, oh, like, we want to know the rules and we want to understand it and figure everything out about it. Well, let's sink our teeth into V specifically because... As I was watching it, I saw it for the first time in preparation for this episode, it almost felt like Powell and Pressburger had like moved to Eastern Europe to make like a fantasy it's horror film. Like, 
there's nothing else really like it. Like I was trying to think of 1960s horror films and like you like have hammer and hammer stuff, which like, I, I like the hammer stuff or I like carnival of souls. None of the living dead. This just feels like a completely different flavor. Oh, and it's, it's totally not unlike anything else going on. Like Roger Corman wasn't doing right. anything like this. It, do, it doesn't feel or look like any Although, horror. Like, like, I'm I know Roger of. Corman was a fan of the story V and like, he sort of referenced it later on. And I like Italy. I, I guess people might've been familiar with because you have like Mario Bava, loosely loosely basing um black sunday on v so like there's some connections there but like you know it does feel like it's a product of a culture where there just weren't that many horror films being made like especially fantastical stuff i don't know if uh, like communists thought maybe it's too weird and too bourgeois for most people or if general audiences just didn't want to see horror films when life was kind of hard or what the rationale was but like it's definitely an anomaly and it just feels like it's way out of left field the style of it like i was thinking um like sam raimi must have seen this film because the evil dead movies just feel so much like uh, they're inspired by v and, you know, not just the narrative, like, even though there's a lot of stuff like reading from the book and Dead by Dawn and yeah. just like, how a lot anything of goes like. It, yeah. Yeah. What's fun is that like, like all that narrative the, stuff's there. But yeah. like there's but, like, also there's like, no the real style. Rule book. It's just whatever the filmmaker feels like throwing at you at any given yeah. moment. And Snap that's zooms, the whip pans that like the energy, the laughing, like all that stuff feels like right out of these. So it, like I, I would. I would be shocked if Sam Raimi hadn't seen this film. There's also just like a, a lighthearted kind of silliness. Like I love yeah. the rear projection when he's drunk or yes. seeing triple and <laughs> things like that. It reminds me of like Ash and like Army of Darkness when yeah. uh, he's like you know, all his little baby versions of himself are like attacking him and things like that. So I, I, I don't know whether or not he ever saw it, but I, it's got a very similar flavor. And obviously <laughs> V came out first. Sure. And even just the idea of like doing a slapstick horror comedy, like the, the combination of those two, I know you have like, other horror comedies like people point to uh, Abbott and Costello meet the Frankenstein or whatever but like you know to sort of combine the slapstick and the horror in the way that they do you know I don't think this is like I wouldn't say this is one of the scariest horror films ever no, made or anything all, like that it's, it's not scary really cool. yeah. it's one of the most fun and one of the most yeah. cool horror movies ever made so like uh, you and know like in the last 20 yeah. minutes also it find I remember as I was watching it I was like this is really interesting it's really beautiful I'm loving it and yeah. then in the last 20 minutes I was like oh Jesus Christ, this suddenly is awe-inspiring. It's getting so fucking cool. And I couldn't believe how it was able to escalate and tighten things up. It just, it really all comes together in that final act. And that's when I was like, all right, well, I'm now, I'm officially watching like a fantasy folklore masterpiece. And it might not, I might not be scared, but I am riveted. Right. And like, it's such a simple story. Well, give them the story if they have not, if they have not seen it. Sure. Uh, Well, the basic story, it's about um, a philosopher named uh, Thomas who's like going to the religious college. Like they're, they're kind of priest students and they go off on break. Seminary students. S- seminary students, right, thank you. And, uh, you know, they, they need a place to crash. They're causing trouble the way that like young students do. Oh, like and... make, I love them like making like goats read from the book. And like, <laughs> yeah. When they get out of school, it's not like they just leave school. Basically like carry off the women and are just acting know, like it's fucking like barbarians. Break stuff, yeah. <laughs> uh, so they need a place to stay. They crash with the... This old lady who's actually played by a man, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, she, she says, well, you each have to sleep in different places. And like she tries to she comes at him. And like, I think the book is a little bit more explicit that like she's trying to seduce him. Like some of the sexuality from the short story is a little bit toned back for this 
Uh, film version. It's pretty abundantly clear that she's ready for a role in the hay, and he's like, <gasps> right. <laughs> and then when he's like, no, and tries to get out of it, she uh, like rides him. <laughs> and at first, she's just like walking around on his back, and, and she has her broom, and then they start flying. And then he kind of comes to his senses and he starts beating her. And like, I don't know if one of the reasons why you want to cast a guy is because like, it just wouldn't be funny otherwise, but he's just smacking this old witch around. And then she turns into uh, humor tends to be a little rougher. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then like, while he's smacking her around, she, he, she turns into this young woman and he runs away. It's funny that that scene that reminds me of a uh, a local legend in Charleston, South Carolina. They have this, I did a, a ghost and like horror tour in Charleston, and they had this myth called the Boo Hag, and the okay. Boo Hag gets up on your back just like in that scene and rides right. around on you and makes you do bad things like cheat on your wife or get too drunk or spend like your parent your, like the money you're setting aside for your kids. And so back in like the early 1800s in Charleston, if you did something you ought not to do, you would just say, well, it wasn't my fault. The boo hag got me. And (laughs) But as soon as I saw that, I was like, all right, well, there's a lot of similar DNA and a lot of folklore all around the world. Sure. Like, I'm sure if you, like, traced, uh, you know, where people came from, you could probably figure out exactly where. Like, you have folklorists really researching that. But uh, the story, like, flash forwards a little bit, and the same student, Thomas, he's called to... Uh, he, he's called to like pray over this young dead woman, and um, yeah, it's so, like she I, names him like in like her will, like she yeah, wants you yeah. to be the and one reading over her soul. Yeah, I think they call him the Sutnik. He's like the administrative uh, military commander over the Cossacks in the area, so he's like a wealthy, powerful guy. And like, I like that you know the the hero. He's kind of a coward, and he keeps trying to get out of it. And you have these like big Cossacks kind of keep dragging him back. And basically, all he has to do to become rich and, um, you know, be free is to read from this book and pray over this dead woman in this abandoned church for three nights. And each night, it kind of escalates what <laughs> happens. It escalates a little bit between the first and second night, and then it escalates a lot the, by the, the third By night. the third, it's like, oh, this is like Dante's Inferno. I mean, this is just completely bananas. <laughs> right. Well, like, even just some of the visuals are some of the most striking things I've ever seen, like the red blood tear on the eye and like the, the way the makeup's done where she's all blue and pale. And yeah, then, she looks beautiful. Uh, she's eerie and beautiful yeah. and terrifying. And yeah, and she, she's, her, her performance she's is fucking astonishing. Awesome. Like she's, she's like vibrating at parts and like, uh, you know, again, there's like a lot of physical humor, just, you know, the way she moves, it's like so high energy. Like, I think maybe that's the thing that I would say compared to a lot of 1960s. Also, the movie's short. It's only like 77 minutes. Yeah. So they, like, they, I mean, they keep that energy up. Like, it's so compact. Like, 76 minutes might be like my platonic film length idea. Like, Valerie and her Week of Wonders, which we're going to be talking about also, it's similar length too. It's like, you know, 78 minutes or, uh, you know, I think it's under 80 minutes. Yeah. No one's ever complained about a, a movie that, no. of, of that running. Yeah. Uh, the third film we're going to be talking about, the Little Otik, I'd say like maybe that's my one issue with it. Like I love the film overall, but like, but the length is it, excessive. It's over two hours, and if it was like seventy-eight minutes, I think I would love it like a million times more. Is <laughs> maybe the only thing, but there's still a lot of great stuff in it. But the but maybe the conclusion of V. I mean, I was watching it, yep. and suddenly these green arms start coming out of the walls, and she's summoning all these spirits. And like these giant skeletons and insects and monsters are rising and scaling the walls. And I just, I couldn't believe the scope and the variety and the detail of the imagination. 
And I just feel like it made so many fantasy films seem like they're standing still where they just are afraid to let the human imagination just completely be unleashed and run wild. And I could just feel like my jaw dropping a couple inches. I couldn't believe just how rich the detail was and just how deliriously strange and intoxicating the imagery was. So I I ranked some of those final scenes as some of the most beautiful and gorgeously strange, (laughs) surreal imagery (laughs) I've ever seen. Like I'm sure Jan Svankmeyer at some point saw that and was like, I'm sure. Yeah. I've got to become an animator. Hands coming out. And well, I love this film so much. I was kind of shocked that like it doesn't really have a much of a cult following outside of Europe. It seems, uh, no, no. Uh, well, it's on Shutter. That's where I saw it. Yeah, it's on Shutter, and I think like Severin might be like they put out a limited edition Blu-ray, and they might be putting out like a regular Blu-ray sort of soon. So I think like more people are going to see it. But I remember like you know first getting on Twitter, I'm like, okay, we're all the V fans at you know I, I, like I, it's the kind of film where I think like it should have like that kind of cult following that something like Hausu does or 100. You know, it's like, right there it, with it. Yeah. You know, I, I think like as soon as people see this, they should be all over it. They should love it and. Uh, especially like if you can see a good version, like uh, most of the time I've watched it on YouTube for free and <laughs> like it, it's uh, it's a really gorgeous film if you see like a good transfer or good restoration. Otherwise, like, well, you know, sometimes... Well, my only complaint of the shutter transfer because it, it is stunningly yeah. beautiful. However, the spoken dialogue is all dubbed, but all the songs are in Russian. So it's a weird thing right. where all the music is just so stunning and so extraordinary and it's, it, it really moves you i just found the music so eerily beautiful and then you have this really clumsy clunky english dubbing i was like oh, well, <laughs> fuck you right. like what what are you what are you doing here and so that was my one big knock but that's obviously on shutter's part yeah not, not on the film yeah that that's not on the film um I don't, the, the music's really cool. I, it's by uh, Karen Kachaturian, who's the nephew of like the Kachaturian, Aram Kachaturian. Uh, and it has a pretty cool pedigree. Like one of the co-directors uh, was mostly a production designer, and he was like the production designer for Alexei Gurman's last two films. So he worked on All roads make lead yeah. back to Alexei Gurman. I know. When talking to Martin <laughs> Kessler. Well, like also like uh, two of Alexei Gurman's regulars appeared in the the remake, which came out I guess two years ago. Is that and the that one with like, Jackie Chan and Arnold Schwarzenegger, or is that a sequel? Th- that's the sequel. Well, like or the, a sequel to the, the remake. remake was like a huge hit. Like apparently, I don't like. I guess in Russia they must still love it or know it, but it, like it's actually a pretty close remake. Like visually, um, you know the guy in Heart to Be a God who plays like the Baron, like the big guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one of the Cossacks in it with the like little hairdo <laughs> and the big mustache. Um, but uh, that was a huge hit, and now like the sequel, I haven't seen it yet, but it's like a Chinese co-production, and it has Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jackie Chan. And Fighting. It's just, like, I mean, you want so to talk about worlds colliding. Yeah, I watched the trailer you sent me, and they're speaking in <laughs> Russian, and I was like, this is the strangest thing I've ever seen, but I love it, because never in a million years would I imagine that too much childhood heroes, Jackie Chan and Arnold, would throw down in a movie, but there they were, doing their thing. In a film that thing. probably nobody in North America is ever going to see. <laughs> It's like purely for a Russian and Chinese market, I guess. You know, yeah. there's no like Rutger Hauer's also in it. I noticed like it has like a big international cast, um, and it's just like I don't think people here are ever going to hear about it. Um, so that that's pretty wild. I I don't know. Like the the remake's fun, but the original to me, it's just one of those things that feels so peculiar for its uh, time and place and style and 
you know, it's such an anomaly that, you well, it know, reminds I, me almost yeah. of like a matter of life and death or stairway to heaven, the Powell and Pressburger film where it's just yeah. completely immersed in this beautiful technicolor fantasy. And I'd say in terms of production value and just overall aesthetic, it's right up there with it. And so, but obviously it comes from a very different tradition, but that was the closest thing I could think in terms of like a cinematic context that it kind of looks and felt like, but yeah, I'd never seen it before. And it's, it sucked me right in. I became a massive fan. Can I say, uh, just before we move on, how Gogol died? Oh, because I me. only found out this is, about this. This is your thing. episode, so you can, you can <laughs> sure. talk about you know, whatever you yeah. like. I, like, I kind of knew that Gogol died young, but I didn't really know why. I was just like, I don't know. Like, did he drink himself to death? I don't know. But, but then I was reading, and like, apparently he got really religious towards the end of his life. And he was only like 42 when he died. Uh, he got this like religious advisor, a steret, or priest uh, called uh, Konstantinovsky, who was like really, really hardcore, and he made Gogol terrified of hell. And <laughs> well, and then he convinced Gogol that like his writing was like sinful, and it was going to send him to hell. And Gogol had like some kind of huge breakdown. Uh, this guy basically made Gogol destroy all his unpublished work, including like the second part oh, of God. Dead Souls, just like, a, you know, all this great potentially great writing was destroyed and then he you know to um to sort of uh pay penance i guess like he, he had google go on uh, a fast and, and then when he finally broke the fast well like he he went on this fast and then as soon as he broke it he had been on the fast for so long that his like stomach had shrunk and his digestive system was all screwed up and he became immediately sick and he had a bunch of quack doctors like sticking leeches on his nose. There's a teachable moment died. in all of this. <laughs> well, and then like, you know, he, Gogol was also terrified of being buried alive, which <laughs> as I, I think we all are. That's a I mean, I'm afraid of a lot fear. of things, but like, I don't like stay up at night worried about whether or not people are going to accidentally bury me alive. Like, you know, it scared me in Serpent in the Rainbow, but it's like, <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> well, and then when they, uh, like, I guess during the Soviet era, they're like, dug up Gogol's body and moved it over and destroyed like the cross and like, you know, replaced it with a bust of his head and stuff like that. But when they dug him up, apparently he was, it looked like he was uh, struggling. So some people think maybe Trying he was buried alive. So like, he just had this like horrible, horrible, uh, you know, last little portion of his life. And it, it feels like something out of like one of the stories he would have written. But uh, <laughs> so, you know, in the end, like the rising from the dead and stuff like that, it feels sort of, appropriate considering where his life ended up uh, you know if you read v wow all right
let's go. switch over to the Czech New Wave. Now, right. correct me if I'm wrong, but your family's all from Czech Republic, but you yep. moved to Toronto when you were a little baby or a toddler? Canada or? when I was young, yeah. Gotcha. Well, give, for people who are unaware of the Czech New Wave, because I feel like people talk about the German New Wave, the French New Wave, but the Czech New Wave obviously has a lot of cool filmmakers as well. So give people just a, a little quick kind of overview of the Czech New Wave, just so people know the, the environment from which this movie comes forth. Sure. It's just a period of unbridled creativity and, uh, you know, generation of fresh filmmakers coming up and breaking ground and doing um, incredible things. You know, you had filmmakers like Milos Forman, you had, you know, masterpieces like uh, Closely Watched Trains and Daisies. Uh, the co-writer of Daisies and production designer, she also was the co-screenwriter and production designer for the film we're going to be talking about, Valeria and her Week of Wonders. So, like, there's a little bit of overlap. I think maybe you can even see it visually, but uh, just, you know, incredible collection of films. And most people say that it ended with the Soviet invasion and what in year uh, that? 1968. Uh, you know, you had Prague Spring and uh, then Soviet tanks rolled in and the Czech film industry kind of collapsed or, you know, you still had films being made, but they were heavily censored. There was, then, And then there was like yeah. the Velvet Revolution, like in like 89 or something like that, when it was like a, a peaceful overthrow where basically they were able to kind right. of shuffle off well, the, uh, the the Soviet dominance. Yeah, uh, which is uh, pretty amazing that there was no bloodshed or anything like that. And then you had Velvet Divorce where it splits off Slovakia. But uh, yeah, I went to Prague in 2012 for a couple of days, and it was so goddamn cool. And you're wa- when you're wandering on some of these old neighborhoods, and the streets and are really narrow, and you have these I don't I don't even know the proper adjective, but just incredibly distinguished architecture, kind of like mm-hmm. almost like encroaching down upon you. Like, all right, well, I can see why Franz Kafka was writing all this <laughs> paranoid, crazy shit. But sure. but as I was watching these movies, this and little Otic. I got such an overwhelming lust and hunger for Czech food because I was over there. Like yes. every every plate of food is just meat with like cream sauce and like and like bread dumplings and like cranberries and like a giant tankard of beer and then like some you know like a big ass dessert and like shots of sleeve of it. So last night, my special lady friend and I, we were about to go see the Jerry see Jerry Seinfeld at the um, Beacon Theater. I was oh, like, you know what? Awesome. We've got to go get some Czech food, or I'm just going to kill somebody because I'm <laughs> freaking out. And so we found this like Czech community center on the Upper East Side, which is like it, like has this famous restaurant. And so yeah, we drank the Slivovitz and drank the beer, and I, I had this huge plate of steak and glop and dumplings, and it was delicious. But I, I could only eat about a third of it before I felt like I was going to die. That's great. I'm gonna have to cook for you sometime. That's oh, dude, Czech food. I, it's, it's my it's my kind of food all the way. What I didn't know is that when I went to Prague, there's kind of an unwritten rule, especially for tourists, that unless you tell them to stop bringing food, they just keep bringing you like, more booze, more food. <laughs> and I, remember I got off the plane when I arrived there. It was like nine in the morning. I was like totally jet lagged, and I went to go get some breakfast. And they weren't serving breakfast, but they were serving lunch. I was like, fuck it, bring on the lunch. And I had a enough lunch set before me for like a family of ten. I was like. What 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 the hell's going on here? And finally, they're gonna clue me in on that local tradition that unless you say stop bringing me beer, they're just gonna keep bringing you beer like enough like like, like the size of a small baby. <laughs> That's great. I know. I I agree. Both these films made me pretty hungry, oh, dude, especially yeah. Little Otik. But <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll get to that. But so let's talk yeah. about Valerie in our Week of Wonders, which another movie I'd never seen before, and I mean, I felt like such a 
scumbag at a certain point because I was watching. I was like, oh, this girl, she's so lovely. She's so beautiful. And like, there are a few scenes where there's some like partial nudity. And I was like, all right, well, let me look her up and see if she ever did any other. Because the 70s, she probably did some other movies. I was like, oh, interesting. She didn't appear in anything else. And so I just looked her up on IMDb and I realized that when she made this movie, she was 13. And was I was like, all right, well, maybe y'all should have told me that in advance before I start thinking all these creepy thoughts and so on and so forth. I mean, she's done like maybe 40 other films. Like, she, she did work after. I, well, I mean, it's a fantasy horror film kind of centered around like budding sexuality and kind of, you know, being attracted to other people for the first time and also having people kind of like notice you sexually and the, the kind of predatory nature of some people. Like, there's got to be a total mind focus. Once about. teenage girls start to look um, pretty whether guys are even intentional intentionally doing it or not it must be so bizarre to be like a child still and having like adult men looking at you in a different way and i, I can't imagine what that must be like just to to go through that right and i mean this takes like a sort of surrealist fantasy kind of approach to it but it's pretty blunt about it at the same time like you have that that uh, priest lusting after this girl he invades you know, her bedroom like, in the middle of the he night. bedroom and rips his, and rips his like, clothes open with like his weird necklace with like teeth and nails or whatever and kind of like does this like 70s kind of like dance. dance <laughs> and then like later on tries to blame it on her like, oh, you seduced me. Like he's terrible. And you know, like um, the film touches on a lot of dark things actually like incest and just, yeah, that like predatory sexuality. Like it really kind of gets into that, that grimy stuff that like I think that subtext is in a lot of folk stories and fairy tales and that sort of thing. And it's just, you know, like we don't really talk that openly about it. Like it's a way of kind of trying to communicate to people who are becoming adults, but still think like children, like, you know, there's dangerous stuff out in the world and it might not always be sexual, but like, I, I think like a lot of fairy tales have that kind of component to them where, you know, I think like sometimes people don't realize that there's like a dark, subtext to a lot of these stories and i think like valerie and your week of wonders it just sort of pushes that to the surface in a way that's kind of shocking actually for a lot of it well let's get into the actual story itself because it's got like this really interesting subplot where like her grandmother is thinking about selling out like her land from or from like basically giving away her birthright in exchange for youth which is i guess that's another cautionary tale where it's like don't necessarily trust your own relations to look after you if they see an opportunity for their for their own. Well, it's benefit. like the evil stepmother from a lot yeah. of these fairy tales, and like even the the grandmother when she becomes younger and she is this sort of like predatory. Like she just says like, "Oh, I'm actually your relative. Don't you recognize me?" Like it made me think of uh, Elizabeth Bathory, who like we talked a little bit about during the Borovchek episode, but it's like Slovak Hungarian. Uh, countess who was like you know murdering young women and drinking their blood and all that stuff but uh, like I, I think there's like some of that in the character and like you can see sort of echoes of the you know both real history and also the folklore myth that kind of comes along with it that gets carried along into these characters but um, I, like it, it's sort of hard to summarize like there's this well, the monster pl- figure it, that's on, on, the, on the surface the plot is I say it's loose. So simple it's hard to write a. So, it's yeah. like extremely complicated and really simple all at once. But it's as I was watching, I was like, "How can you summarize this? Pl- you can give the sequence of events, 
but it won't even begin to accurately capture the almost dreamlike quality of how the events unfold. But they seem very logical under the circumstances, even if they don't necessarily feel totally grounded in reality. But it makes it hard to kind of break it down. It's like, how do you summarize Alice in Wonderland? Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that sort of thing. And like, I think depending how you interpret the film, like you can kind of say it's all a dream too. And it's sort of this like girl who has had her first uh, period, like her kind of dream that comes out of that. And like the very end of the film is her in bed. And it's sort of like, you know, maybe this is her waking up or, her, you know, kind of conflating like, you know, a sexual awakening with like literally waking up or, you know, you can look at it from any number of perspectives, but some of it's just, <laughs> like I, I love all the stuff with the vampires. It's so strange and kind of silly and funny, and uh, you know, even the way they do it, like the fangs, it's like straight out of a like Jean Roulin kind of a film. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Just popping out with the fangs, and it, like there's something a little bit like um, you know playing dress up with it, and. But it's also fun seeing how, like, the yeah. grandmother, once she finally gets her youth and beauty back, like, the first thing she does is take her new body for a spin and has a little roll in the hay with, like, with the farmhand and things like that. Right. But obviously, if you're, like, 75 years old and suddenly you're, you know, kind of resurrected and reinvigorated yeah. with some vampiric youth, of course, the first thing you're going to do is go out and have a nice, have a nice uh, get a nice rogering just to see, uh, see how your new parts function. Well, there's also this, like, fear in the film of, like, getting older and what that means. And, like, there's the young woman who's married and, like, the husband's like, oh, don't don't make that face. You look old when you make that face. And, you know, there's little comments like that kind of mixed in, too. And the, uh, the monster who might be her father or maybe not, the old vampire, you know, he's supposed to be, like, over 100 years old and... He's um, and is in a desperate need of going to the dentist because not only does he have like big long teeth, it's just like all this like <laughs> black grime and crud kind of collecting in the gaps between the teeth. Well, it, it it's actually like really funny when he's hiding behind the fan and kind of like peeking out behind masks and stuff, and it's just such a, I know, it's a funny face. Like it's almost like the um, the Pazuzu Exorcist face, except or uh, like it's probably closer to. Um, also, you remind me a little bit of the the death character in uh, yeah, Seven, and Seven Seal. Seal, right? It, like, especially when he like, which I'm sure is rooted in the cloak like some stuff. sort of painterly yeah. tradition going back centuries in Western Europe, where everybody, people sure, sure, like death death like figures and... in a variety of similar ways. Right, uh, like visually, the, the film's really astonishing. Like, there's one part where she's laying in this like coffin, surrounded by green apples, or even when the the vampire guy opens his cloak and he has this like little white dog sitting there. And like, there's so many visuals in the film that just jump out and kind of. But one of my favorites is all these girls in like nightgowns and like a stream or creek and they're taking fish out of the water and putting it inside oh, their clothes yeah. so they can feel it wiggling up against their naked bodies i was like all right that's that's interesting like <laughs> there's a lot of beautifully evocative imagery right and I, like i understand why like some people would be cautious coming into a film where like the main topic is sexuality and like the main character is this 13 year old girl but i don't like well, they're, they're European. It's 1970. So <laughs> sure, different like, standards. I'm, like, I'm sure the legal age of consent was probably like eight or something like that. But like, I, I think it actually sort of treats it respectfully, like the the way it follows her kind of journey and the way it, it sort of treats these real threats. It's not like I don't. It, it's not like no. It doesn't, it doesn't have a pervy vibe at all. There are pervy characters pervy in there or, yeah. who are lusting after her. Right. That, that's but, what I was. But it doesn't to say, feel yeah. like a pervy film remotely. Yeah. No, like, that's the thing. It's it's like there are pervy characters and, like, she's noticing 
sexual things for the first time, but it's not really like it's sexualizing her in this way that's... Of course, in 2019, people are like, don't you realize that you're normalizing perverts by putting perverts in your movie? It's like, <laughs> well, you don't understand the function of art because art doesn't necessarily always equate to an endorsement, etc. Like, no, I, I feel like I, I hear this in like film criticism more and more where people like basically boils down to like, oh, this film showed me something negative, therefore it's bad. Like... Films are so it's an, it's an entire generation of people who don't understand the function of art because they think <laughs> all art should be an extension of their whatever their agenda might be or whatever right. their partisan goals might be. But they don't realize that, you know, sometimes art can just exist for its own sake. It's, it's it can just be a, a heightened sense of experience or an aesthetic experience, and it might not have any agenda of any kind. And the lack of agenda might be its agenda, but it's a weird thing now where I find myself totally bewildered by people who are unable to understand something either as they're, they're totally binary. Like this either yep. furthers my causes or it opposes my causes. And that, and they, only, they think about it only in those terms like, Oh, Joker is doesn't further my causes. So we have to do a concerted takedown or <laughs> right. it's, just, it's just a weird moment. And I think we've reached peak stupidity and that the pendulum will swing back the other way, but who knows, maybe they'll surprise me by taking things a few steps further in the, in the years to come. Well, like, especially when things get kind of repressed, people don't know how to talk about sexuality. And like, if people don't want to acknowledge that there's a gray area, then it makes it complicated. And I know like they're also on the flip side, like there are actual perverts who use that gray area to hide, you know, so it's hard to draw, draw a line, especially when you're talking about like, you know, young people and children and sexuality, like, you know, it's hard to say, like, why maybe Sally Mann's photography is okay, but David Hamilton's isn't, or, you know, like, oh, it, it's yeah. that kind no, of You can stuff definitely get where, into weird territory. Like, yeah. it, why is it okay for uh, Brooke Shields to appear in Pretty Baby right. at age 12 with full frontal nudity? And I was like, ooh, like, because that's legal. You can watch it on Amazon. But I read a great line recently that Cronenberg quoted by Vladimir Novikov, and he said, you have no social responsibility as an artist. You must not self-censor. I was like, all right, well, there it is, black right. and white. Like, the goal is not to create propaganda. It's, like he said, the art, first and foremost, should appeal to the subconscious. And I feel like Valerie in A Week of Wonders is one of those movies that 100% appeals to the subconscious. Right. Well, even, like, aside from self-censorship, like, I, I think just in terms of... I. I don't know, like trying to talk about things openly and like, I don't, it, it's tricky. Like, I mean, uh, again, thinking about like Alice in Wonderland, like I, I think, <laughs> uh, did you see there was like a BBC documentary from a couple of years ago about Lewis Carroll? Um, I did not know. Okay. Let me, let me guess. He, he did something horrible. And so now people don't want to read Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> well, uh, that, that's the gist of it. I think there's also like a film called dream, dream child. Um, where Ian Holm plays him, which is pretty good. People might want to check that out. But like, you know, Lewis Carroll, I'm trying to think of his real name. It was like Reverend Dodgson or something like that. Let me see. Uh, I think it was Dodgson. But, you know, like talking about writing Alice in Wonderland, like whether he had an unhealthy Charles relationship Ludwig with the real life. Dodgson, yeah. D-O-D-G-S-O. Dodgson, okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, the real... Character like the character Alice is based on a real person, uh, Alice Little, I think, and you know he probably had kind of an unhealthy relationship with her, and he was sort of known for taking nude photographs of children, and maybe asked her also very young sister if he could marry her, and the family cut ties off with him basically. Oh wow! Uh, you know, and I know this is like contested. There are like hardcore Lewis fans who will like defend it. It's. Uh, 
you know, but it, it just sort of makes you rethink that story and sort of, you know, what, what meaning there is behind it. Yeah, and it what, gives you in a different you know, angle with it, which it does, to like, look at the story. <laughs> well, you know, and uh, I mean, Jan Schwenkmeier also, uh, he did a adaptation of Alice in Wonderland also. And I'm, like when we talk about Little Antique, there's also like this sort of undercurrent or... Oh, there's four scenes involving there, a pedophile. There's, like, <laughs> there's a, for a actual pedophile character yeah. in the film. You know, so like... It, it just makes you think about like fairy tales and folk tales a little bit differently when you sort of look back as an adult and you think like, okay, like, you know, what, what's going on? Well, with they the have an that? attitude toward it almost like if you're like watching like Borat and he's like talking about like the village pervert or the village pederast, like you just would have like your <laughs> one token like child molester in every, in every village and people and the kids kind of knew to stay away from him almost like he's like a haunted house or something, but they're just, they're very blase about it. I guess so. I mean, <laughs> the, um, uh, pedophile in little otik it reminded me of the, the pedophile character on family guy there's an animated oh yeah he's like oh hey yeah, yeah, he yeah. looks just like that yeah, right? he's, he's always like, going after I'm, chris yeah and, and like in little otik the mother's like oh like he's just harmless like ignore him and this girl's just frowning at this guy who's like well early you know, on she's terrified of him because every time she sees him in stop motion animation his pants come unbuttoned and like his hand comes out and she's terrified but toward the end she's so over it she'll just kind of turn around and be like calm down you know you're gonna have another another heart attack and you're gonna collapse and she like totally kind of i don't know she changes the dynamic in a way where he no longer scares her she's kind of in charge in a lot of ways and i, and I like seeing that arc of how she goes from terror to total dominance by the end because at one point he's like cracking his knuckles and moving in for the pounce and he just collapses with a heart attack and he's like taking pills trying to stay alive and anyway it's it is, it is played the for laughs. She, she feeds him to the, the monster. So like yeah, and those scenes made me yeah. laugh like hell. And I feel like yeah, Jan Svankmeyer, he found a way to tackle something that in 2019, like American Hollywood, would there would only be like one appropriate way, quote unquote, to tackle that. But Jan Svankmeyer is like, you know what? I'm going to do it my own way. And I think he totally makes it hysterical. Right. I don't like, you know, fairy tales saying that they're just for kids and stuff like that. Like, it's again, if nonsense. I think like it's about like, yeah, sure. I, I think like there's adult stuff going on in fairy tales. And I think like fairy tales are actually interesting or folk tales are interesting because you can kind of analyze them and find some subtext or find some like extra meaning in them, you know, and that's why like different film versions that actually, you know, ha have like a different take or try to read into things in a way that, you know, you realize like, oh, these stories aren't, shallow and they're actually talking about serious or dark things they just might do it in a way that's acceptable for it's only in the world of disney cartoons children. that fairy tales yeah. are simplistic and kind of naive and boring and vanilla most fairy tales or legends from different parts of the world are fucking bizarre as hell and like super pervy <laughs> and totally bloodthirsty and terrifying right. and yeah so yeah i feel yeah. like we ha we have a a, a bias, at least in America, where we think, oh, all fairy tales need to be like the animated Beauty and the Beast. But it's like, guess what? Fairy tales can be absolutely petrifying. And I refuse to live in a world where the only fairy tales I watch are like live action Disney remakes of cartoons that came out 50 years ago. I just, that's the, the, just too depressing and demoralizing. I, well, I, just going back to your earlier point about fairy tales not necessarily being for kids. It's like comic books or it's like anything that kind of carries this stigma of animated stories, you know, this idea that like, oh, it's inherently a children's medium. But, you know, like, I think it can be elevated and I think it can say things like not just to kids, but to anyone and it can be meaningful. And um, 
that that's part of the reason why I find these films interesting is they just they all say like such complicated, strange kind of things, actually, like when you try to dig into what they're about, you know, I, I think they're all complex works, even though they come from these very uh, sort of simple stories. And, you know, like the, the filmmakers behind them, they're serious folks, like the, the director of Valerie Valeria and her week of wonders, uh, you know, it's the same director who did the joke, which like is completely, totally different, but it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, like a real masterpiece film and it's kind of dark and weighty and serious about somebody who makes a joke and he's, um, punished because it's communist society. So, you know, like he's coming off of that and making this fairy tale. It's not like, you know, it's not just somebody who is only interested in telling stories just for children or, you know, especially like dumbing down stories for children. I think like, you know, they're actually doing something kind of complicated and trying to tackle this area where it's kind of, you, you know, like, like dumbing things down for children. Yeah. It's a weird thing where, so many adults feel like they need to dumb things down for children. But I've I know, never you, met a child in my life yeah. that wants anything dumbed down for them. If anything, the kids want to see what the adults are watching. It's this strange <laughs> thing where adults feel like, oh, well, this my child's not ready for gremlins. I'm like, well, like, why, like, why not? I, I get like, that what, there's like, 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 what, what are you to of? kids. I know you want to protect your kids from like seeing something shocking or horrible. Like, I, I understand that. Like, but at the same time, I remember like just some of the things that I saw as a kid and like, you know, that wasn't the, the bad stuff. Like, I, you know, again, like if people watching Valeria and her week of wonders, like, you know, they're probably thinking of like, Oh, you know, what, what, what are, what would the actress's parents think about like sexuality and stuff like that? That's not what her parents were worried about. Like she was talking about, uh, they filmed during her summer break and, uh, her mom, you know, supervised the whole film as you would sort of hope. But she said like the thing her mom had a big issue with is when they, burn her character at the stake and it, like they did it carefully where you know of course it's it's safe but uh, she said like her mother who didn't drink and smoke she looked over and all of a sudden her mom's drinking and smoking and they're like crude making jokes like well we got to make it look real we're gonna burn her for real <laughs> like just <laughs> nice. torment her poor mother and to watch your daughter get burned like you know I, I feel like it would sort of go over the heads of some people like you know, that's maybe the most shocking thing in the film is burning a girl alive, uh, accusing her of being a witch, even though she's not and burning her alive. Um, you know, but it, it's tricky. Like I, I know people have their own standards and it's hard to kind of say, you know, you're right or you're wrong for wanting to protect your kids from certain things. Well, guess, but, you know, if they're your kids, yeah. raise them however you want, but uh, raise them however you want. I'm not trying the, to from, like, from criticize the kid's that point of view. Every but, kid's yeah. like, I want to see more. So I, I, I just, I don't think the adult adults will say, "Oh, well, I don't want them to have bad dreams. I, I don't want to yeah. upset them." What the it's really the adults more worried about their own concerns as opposed to the child's mm -hmm. concerns. So I just I don't like the bullshit excuse like, "Oh, well, we have to make this more kid friendly because we don't want to upset the kids." The kids want to be upset. They are hungry to be upset. They <laughs> right. crave these experiences, and so I just don't buy the lie that they're doing it for the kids' sake. They're doing it for the adults' sake, and it's for their own selfish purposes. Mm -hmm. They want, I think more often than not, it comes from a situation where the parents want to preserve the youth and innocence of their little kids so they can be kids just a little longer. The parents are loving and adoring, having – they know it's going to be over far too quickly, and then they're going to miss it. 
And they're just trying to let their kids hang on to their child a little longer. But for me, if I was going to be an advocate on the, the kid's behalf, I could speak just from my own personal experiences. I always wanted it to be, every kid wants to be an adult. Every kid's ready to grow up. So it's like, I just, I, I think people should try to remember what, what it was like as when they were a kid and how they wanted to get a car. They wanted to be able to drink. They wanted to be able to watch R-rated movies. Every kid wants to ha- have what's coming next. I mean, looking back, I'm so grateful that my parents weren't, restrictive about what I wanted to watch and what I could do really. And like, you know, it was within reason, but uh, my parents, uh, my parents give zero fucks. Like if, yeah, you, if, no, my, my if the headmaster's not calling watched, us, like, if you're not in trouble and your yeah. grades are at a certain level, we'll get let, we'll basically let you run around wild, like a pack of dogs. And uh, I had to, total freedom as long as I didn't like, you know, do something too stupid. You know, like I, I'm still like my parents obviously cared, but like, you know, I could watch Simpsons, but I remember like other kids couldn't or, you know, there, there were lots of things like that. Uh, movies, R-rated movies, watching as a kid that people didn't. And it's not like, you know, I don't think I turned out any worse for that. If anything, it, it sort of introduced me to ideas and mature things kind of early on. But, you know, it's, it's hard. Like, I, it, I mean, Valeria and her Week of Wonders makes me think about like the people who are like objecting to like... Uh, you know, sex studies in schools, like, oh, no, it's like too early. Like, I know, like, some people keep pushing it for earlier and earlier. But like, it, it just sort of makes me think of like that pushback of like, oh, no, like, I, I don't want my kid to hear any of this. Or I don't want to acknowledge that, like, you know, at 13, it's at that awkward place between like, you know, somebody who still thinks like a child and somebody who people start looking at more and more like an adult. Yeah, but. like I was 12 and we had our first sex ed class. And I'll never forget, they separated the boys and girls into different classrooms. And the teacher just opened up. He's this big, fat, dorky dude. And he's like, well, all right, well, we just got to get, we just got to go ahead and get this over with. But like the next couple of like days or weeks, you're going to be hearing me say the word penis a lot. And we're all, you know, 12-year-old boys. Yeah, and like, laughing. <laughs> <laughs> just, and he just wouldn't stop saying, he's like, penis. Penis. We're like, stop saying penis. <laughs> we were just, we were in stitches, rolling out of a chair, so you just couldn't handle it. He just, I don't know. He just, maybe he just wanted to say penis to a bunch of a room full of twelve-year-old boys. But I'll, I'll never forget that experience. <laughs> well, I mean, some kids turned out to be monsters no matter what, which exactly. kind of leads into our next film. Some kids are just born bad. Some kids are born <laughs> with a darkness in their soul, and they're going to grow up to be a serial killer, no matter what, no matter what conditions are on the ground. Let's move on to uh, Little Otik and AKA uh, Greedy Guts, which I've never heard it referred to as AKA Greedy Guts. Otisanic. Yeah, but I, I see it on IMDb as Greedy Guts, and I was like, all right, well, yeah. I remember because I was in LA when this movie came out, and I was already a big Jan Svenkmeyer fan because for, I don't even know how this happened, but when I was 
maybe a third or fourth year UVA. I just found some VHS at the local video store where I worked and it had a bunch of his shorts on it. Took it home and I could not fucking believe how cool these shorts were. It was like Darkness Night, Darkness Light Darkness and Manly Games and a bunch of his essential shorts. They just, I was utterly in awe of how cool his uh, his short films were. And I think he's one of the greatest animators of all time. I think yeah. you could put him on a top three list or a top five, whatever list you've got. Or if you want to put him just at number one, I would have no problem with any of it. So for me, it's just a joy to finally shine a light on, I think, one of the world's foremost animators of all time on Wrong Reel. And I might prefer watching his shorts over his features, but right. I, I'll agree. Little Alec, it's on the long side, but... It has so many great scenes in it. So I, it this does. is my second yeah. time watching it. I, I am a massive fan. I, it's incredible the way he just gives life to these inanimate things. Like I, I like that a lot of his stop motion animation, it's centered around like everyday objects or he'll make an animated short of just about meat, yeah. you know, and it's something that feels People very kind of plates and forks real. And it's like it's not like he kind of creates his own puppets or things like that. Like it, it's actually something that you can see in your kitchen or in your bedroom or uh, there's like a kind of tactility to it that's very familiar and it's great to see these things come to life in his animation. Uh, I agree like that the shorts are probably the thing that everyone should see first. It's like maybe the best introduction, but uh, because they're little, pure, they're yeah. pure animation. Whereas this is they're all animation. This is yeah. largely a live action movie with little animated yeah. sequences, like the guy's buttons think, coming undone on his fly and that sort of thing. But it's mostly a live action movie. But mm-hmm. I do like his live action style, and I love his emphasis on close ups. And there's tons of humor. And as I was watching, I was thinking, there's this kind of like deadpan style to it. Where yeah, it's just I was like, like, this actually would wide work smack as like a funny, yeah. com- but it would kind of work as a funny comedy about yeah. an expecting couple, even without mm-hmm. the crazy root like you know tree trunk coming to life thing like it actually would be just just a funny comedy of manners about how people going baby crazy whether it's the mother who wants to be a mother or the the nosy neighbors who are getting up in your business but i think it actually works pretty goddamn well about as a commentary on baby fever but then of course you throw in this myth of this tree trunk coming to life and eating everybody which just takes it to another level I mean, this time watching, especially, I was thinking like it's kind of like a racer head. A lot of his parental anxieties, and the father keeps kind or of or little like, shop of horrors. Like it's kind of boring. or little sure. I guess you could compare it to that, but like you know, the father's sort of saying like, "Well, I can still kill it. I can still kill it." You know, and the mother keeps protecting this monster, which you know keeps growing and like it starts off eating the cat, and then the mailman, and then it gets carried away from there. <laughs> I love uh, like as soon as she gets focused on this. Uh, tree tr- stump baby <laughs> like she starts ignoring the cat and kind of abusing it like she's like Which, get out of here like every is, time that's such great commentary because I have seen it couples is. I won't name any names but I have seen couples where their life centers around their dog or their cat or whatever but the moment the baby arrives they're like oh I guess we gotta give it away I'm like what the fuck are you talking about like that you, you took this animal in like you don't have to like devote as much attention, but I, I'm always kind of sickened by couples who immediately start looking at their pet like a completely disposable piece of garbage the moment a baby arrives. And that I find really annoying, but it isn't, once again, so this movie, it's a great commentary on the way people behave when they're both trying to have a kid as well as after the baby arrives. Right. So like, again, the, the sort of eraser head comparison, like just a lot of those anxieties about like being a parent and having this kind of, baby that you don't want people to see <laughs> that that's kind of horrific um but I love like the a lot of the story... a perfect response to everything like as his wife goes 
gets crazier and crazier and crazier. He just knows when a girl gets baby baby fever, stay the hell out of her way because she's going <laughs> to eat you alive otherwise. And his response to everything is just to like pour a drink. It's like, is, it's like pour a drink, pour a drink. It's the only sane response to uh, to the madness going on in their household. Right. Well, and the uh, other main character, aside from the parents, it's the little girl we kind of mentioned earlier who's, who's amazing. Actually, she, 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 she steals really the movie great. outright. Yeah. Like, I, I think she's kind of the real star of the film. And uh, she reads the folklore story and she kind of knows where this whole thing's going. Like, I, I like that the story actually exists within the world of the film so she can just go and read it in the book and she knows how this is all going to end. Which gives him an opportunity to do more stop motion animation because obviously yeah. we're so used to him doing claymation or animating like forks or animating yeah. tree trunks it's or whatever. It's 2D animation. Yeah, but it's cool but, 2D. Yeah. It's almost like South Park in terms of like the, the, the <laughs> right. original construction paper animation but I yeah. love the little film within a film. That's really great. It feels like the illustrations in a book just come to life. And I know they're all like original designs, but it just feels like, you know, you sort of imagine those illustrations in your favorite kids' books, like if they could come to life and do something. So it made me think of that. Um, but also, I, I just love the household, like the, the neighbors, the little girl's parents are so goddamn funny where you have the <laughs> right. mother who's a delightful character, but the father he looks for any and every excuse to just get completely shit faced. Like at one point they're talking about we need like someone to drive her to the hospital. He's like, Oh, I've had five beers. Like I'm just like he just makes me hell throughout. Or when they're like when he gets an opportunity to like whip out the sleeve of it and start pouring shots for everybody and he's like dancing and screaming in the hallways or trying to like when they're worried about waking people up, but he just makes me howl with laughter throughout. Or anytime he hears his little girl like talking about like low sperm count and like pregnancy and erections, like he's just horrified <laughs> by all the concerns that his little daughter suddenly uh, developing i like uh there, there's the one part where he snatches the book from her and he, like because he keeps kind of chastising her for reading this like anatomy book or sexuality book and he sees that oh it's just a book of fairy tales and gives it back to her and like she just put the dust dust jacket of a fairy tale book over this book about like sexuality and reproduction yeah and like to me that's kind of what these like fairy tales do is sort of again going back to valeria and her week of wonders it's like okay the the actual text is about like sexuality and reproduction and adult things and we're just going to put the dust jacket of a fairy tale over top to make Absolutely. it okay for the people who don't actually want to look <laughs> yeah i mean the kids got to learn this shit somewhere and usually kids are ready to learn about this crap long before parents are willing to divulge it like in, in every case that I've ever heard of, by the time parents sit their kids down to have the talk about right. like, reproduction, STDs, birds and the bees, whatever you want to call it, the kids are light years ahead of the parents. And they're like, Mom, you're gross. I know. Like, but it's like the parents always are like a, a couple of years too late on having that conversation. Almost always. Although every once in a while you run into somebody who's like weirdly naive about something sexual or like – somebody who has some weird misbelief and it's kind of shocking that like how how did you make it to this many years of your life without understanding this basic I mean, concept I remember like, my little sister Carter at one point she used to think that babies come out of a mother's mouth but she was like four and so well, like yeah that's, that's fine when you're four not when you're like 16 or 18 or 29 <laughs> I don't know. yeah some people i guess just managed to just like dodge that bullet maybe it's because i just watched a lot of r-rated movies but i think also just because I, I came from a family with an like just a, an army of kids so there was just a lot of talk about sure. babies and reproduction and everything there's there's right. no no shortage of conversations about where babies come from in my household I'm, I'm one of nine kids by blood and both my parents got remarried and kept having kids so yeah we had babies coming out of our fucking ears my, my entire life <laughs> that's great 
which reminds me of like the, the opening credit sequence is a great little stop motion sequence with all the babies and the crying yeah. sounds and things like that and there's there's so much great stuff in this i wonder why Svenkmeyer decided to make this movie so goddamn long and also he deprives us of a really satisfying kind of clincher conclusion climax mm-hmm. it's building 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 and then it kind of hides the climax behind his back and i think if he just made a few simple fixes this would have been this monster runaway kind of dark comedy animated yeah. success but as it is it's, it's an incredibly obscure movie it's hard to find like after it came out in la I remember I played at the New Art for a couple of weeks. I basically never heard of this movie again until you recommended us diving into it. But I, I was it was absolutely delightful revisiting it because I'm always happy to watch anything by Svank Meyer. But I think he shot himself in the foot. But I know he originally intended it to be a live-action movie shot in the early 90s, and he wanted to cast Woody Allen and Mia Farrow as the lead. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I did not hear that. Yeah, it's... which would have been quite a different movie. <laughs> that would have been pretty different. Yeah. It's like... A... Wasn't Eyes Wide Shut at one point supposed to star Woody Allen and Mira Farrow? That I don't know, but it was. I, I'm once pretty again, sure I've, I've heard that. I, I think from uh, from his uh, brother-in-law, who was also the producer, he said like they, they tried to make it maybe in the early '80s, and it was going to be like with Woody Allen in black and white. <laughs> it's just a completely different kind of a movie. Well, because I feel like uh, so, if, you, if you put Woody Allen in it, you're like, well, he'd probably already have access to this underground sex club, like Fidelio organization. <laughs> he's, he's already invited to the club. Yeah. Speaking of which, my Halloween costume this year, I've already, I've got my tuxedo and I've got my robe ready to go. And I've got, I, I ordered one, I basically ordered the Sydney Pollock mask for when they're at the party, but it, I had to order it from fucking Italy. It's on its way, but I don't, if it doesn't arrive in time, I've got the Tom Cruise mask ready to go, but I'm going to be one of the, the guests at that party so I, i'm i'm fired up and ready to go you're ready for and, the yeah and uh, <laughs> we're going to this uh this club called the norwood and my special lady friend she's going as megan fox and jennifer's body so well the, mo- the movie references will be will be going strong she's got her evil dead t-shirt ready to go and all that good stuff let's see you wear it again at christmas yeah exactly yeah it's good for two days absolutely <laughs> I, I was going to do Tim Heidegger from Us dress up for Halloween, but I'm not sure if I can get that ready together in time, even though it's pretty basic. My my girlfriend was joking that we should go as uh, the, the little girl from Hereditary, and I should go as like the telephone pole. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's going to happen. The problem happen. is with those kind of costumes, you spend the entire evening explaining your costume. I, I know. I, and it, you it, want it, people to see you from a distance like, oh, my God. Like a little – I guess icebreakers are fun because you have to – but you don't yeah. have the same conversation 100 times over the course of an evening. So, yeah, I think your costume should be somewhat self-explanatory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the actual yeah. creature itself because there's some really cool stuff in this. Like, I think my favorite shot in the movie is when the little girl unleashes Otik from his cage. And yeah. we have this great POV shot of all the roots going toward her. And she's very calm. She's like, no, Otik, like, I'm not food. And he kind of calms down. But there's – I mean, I, I, it reminded me a little bit of Manly Games and the scenes where the guys – have you seen Manly Games, the, 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 the soccer short that he did? Yes. Like when you know when they have all these different ways that the players are being dispatched, and like some are getting hit with a ha- hit in the head with a hammer, some are having their faces carved out. But there's one where after he gets hit a couple of times, his tongue kind of comes out and slurps around his teeth, and the it was a little odd. Yeah. You had the teeth and the tongue it, just it, being taken to delirious heights, and I love how every once in a while, pops out. yeah, every once in a while <laughs> he just removes his mouth and sticks his big giant like cyclops eye out. So I think in terms of creature design. 
Attic is fucking just brilliant it's stuff. Ri- like even just the baby stump, like as an inanimate object on its own, looks amazing. Like I love when the mother's like oh, trimming the little. Oh, out of his back. You need to shave it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like putting cream on the little like knots in the wood, as if it's its bob or whatever. Like absolutely, it, it's just such a great design for this like wooden baby creature. Uh, I don't like. I, it, I think the story predates the Pinocchio story. I was reading a little bit about it. Um, I always think it's like kind of weird when filmmakers or actors like they, they keep saying their dream project is like a Pinocchio story. Yeah, I, I like, like Coppola I, I never got, like, and like Roberto Benigni, like, and everybody wants to do fucking po- well, Pinocchio. Even like, it's like Kubrick doing AI, it's basically Pinocchio. Like a bunch of like Robert Downey Jr. wanted to do a Pinocchio. Like yeah. for whatever reason, some people get like fixated on that. And like to me, I would much rather do this. <laughs> like something that's. Uh, not so sweet and i don't know it's kind of more fun i think it's actually more rough this, edges. it's got a lot, lot more cannibalism <laughs> or not, not even cannibalism but just a lot more people being eaten i mean like the father comes in with like the chainsaw and just when he sees how that, big his boy got that moment when it, <laughs> he gets the chainsaw to do battle with this oh, it's, it's fantastic and i love how like the little girl has this little game where she just starts using a little box of matches to decide which of her neighbors she's going to feed to it next it's like god damn you graduated to like mass murderer very very, very quickly because she just wants just to... how they get into the logistics when police start looking around like oh yeah the mailman's dead so now i have to run around at night and deliver people's mail <laughs> otherwise people will get suspicious yeah and... she's so resourceful and she she's just a delightful character and she's when she's trying to basically warn people about how things are about to get really really bad and no one wants to pay oh, attention no one to wants her. to listen to her no no oh, one yeah, but she just I, with, without her i think the movie would be tougher to watch but she's just so goddamn funny that i spent <laughs> most of the movie howling with laughter even if i was periodically just checking the runtime just to kind of see where i was yeah well like some of the funny scenes uh, it doesn't even have the OT, like when the mother's out in public and like people kind of peek you know oh i'm gonna take a look at the baby and it's just this like rubber doll <laughs> it's so uh like their reactions are so strange every time or so funny and but it's funny how, like, the, like people do think they can just like insert themselves into your business whether you're pregnant or have just had a baby suddenly people think they have like license oh, sure. to just be yeah. way too nosy like i mean i've seen it so many times where people just will walk up to a pregnant woman and start rubbing her belly i'm like what the fuck? Like you can't just walk up to somebody and start rubbing their goddamn belly. So they might they might feel a little vulnerable. They might just be self conscious. Like might all be, the unsolicited advice. Yeah, like. unsolicited advice, and just yeah, the way people just all of a sudden the entire world wants to give you all this all their fucking opinions. And so I think in terms of as like social commentary and just social satire, this movie really fires on all cylinders. I know there's that one part where like the the um, little girl's mother is kind of asking. And the the mother of Otik just like snaps at her like it's my baby not yours like fuck off basically <laughs> she she really just lets her have it but like all the the scheming how to make it look like she's pregnant like she's like, got these different questions that yeah, get bigger with every month. Different months. And she's getting like impatient so she's like yeah let's just have it like a premature baby and, like, yeah. <laughs> and the husband just has to like roll his eyes and just basically because he know once again she's got the fever and if he stands in her way well, it, it ain't gonna be he good goes along with it the whole time but when the moment of truth comes when he's finally like okay i'm gonna go kill this thing he's like son <laughs> 
Yeah. Like, he just can't do it. It's he finally like becomes child. a father in that moment. Yeah. Well, they always say right. that like um, women become a mother the moment they become pregnant, whereas men become a father the moment they see their child. Like it just girls, it just it, it, mm. just the DNA, all that information, just it all just kicks in early on. And so, yeah, obviously he's having a little trouble uh, coming to terms with the fact that he is a father. And obviously with very good reason because his son's a fucking monster that eats animals and people. <laughs> Yeah, I wish there was a little bit more animation in this. Like, there's so much live action at times. Out of all his live action films or feature films, I think this one has the least animation, actually. Yeah. I I think so. Probably just, I'm sure, just in terms of, like, the workload, animating the monster, I'm sure, was just incredibly tedious. I mean, just, like, the the man hours must have been considerable. Different sizes of it, and, like, every time you see it, it's getting bigger. And at one point, I think maybe it's after they killed the social service woman or maybe just before, like, the breathing... It sounds almost like uh, in Aliens when Ripley goes to kill the, the Queen Alien, that kind of like raspy breathing sound. and like I, I love all that stuff. And then when you see it, it's like getting larger. And by the end, it's this like massive thing. And, Audrey you know, 2 unleashed. <laughs> right. You know, and then, of course, it just it, it takes the uh, old lady with a hoe after her cabbages got eaten to take this thing down. Yeah, that's a great sequence. But, it's basically, it's getting so fucking hungry. All of its roots come out the window and grab yeah. all the cabbages. And yeah, from the myth, a, an old lady with a hoe smacked him in the belly open. and killed it. And so it's you can presume this old lady's finally, she's had enough, like you don't fuck with her cabbages and she goes down to dispatch <laughs> it. But I was a little annoyed not to have that scene. I feel like you gotta have, you gotta have that I, I scene. It would have been like, it could have been funny and sad all at once seeing her kind of do battle with this thing and then like kill it. And you know, it, it's, it's just a child, so like on one hand, like it's a monster, but you also want to feel kind of bad for it. And well, I guess for anyone who objects to the pedophilia jokes in it, at least the pedophile does get fed to this creature. So like he he gets he, well, he, he does he get, get his comeuppance. Yeah, he gets his comeuppance for all of his, for lusting after that little girl. But yeah, I, I think this movie is fantastic. But I think if someone wants mm-hmm. to explore Jan Svankmeyer, he's got I mean, he's going IMDb. He's got forty films, most of which are shorts. Yeah. And I think you can just. I think even with the collection films, maybe like Alice is a good place to start. Hell yeah. I, I really like his Alice in Wonderland version. I remember I watched that with my brother when we were kids. So that, that, that was all right when we were kids. And then like the, the Disney version looked a little bit wimpy in comparison. <laughs> yeah, the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland was pretty goddamn lame oh, as well. And yeah, that, just... I have like. I remember seeing that in 3D, and that was like one of the films that made me want to swear off 3D because like. It was so long and I had this like giant headache and I couldn't really see the screen because the, the glasses dim it so much. And like, I just remember being miserable for that entire yeah, The only thing film. I liked about that movie is how cool she looked in her armor then. I was like, all right, well, they should, yeah. should put her in her armor earlier. Like, something about like a, like a beautiful girl wearing like full chain mail, like a sword and shield. They just look so yeah. fucking cool. And so I remember at the end thinking, all right, she looks pretty goddamn badass when she's about to fight the Jabberwocky. But otherwise, uh, yeah, that movie was worthless. And then they made a sequel for whatever reason. Right, Tim even Tim Burton didn't come back for the sequel. So yeah, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't know. Like Tim Burton, I was rewatching the, the Batman movies recently. I've been on like a Batman kick and I don't know, like in the nineties, Tim Burton was unstoppable. He was like the best he was <laughs> like, the coolest working cool. in Hollywood. He was the coolest. I loved like all his films from the nineties, like Ed well, Wood yeah. and Mars Ed Attacks. Hands, and, Batman Returns, yeah. Ed Wood, Mars Attacks, Sleepy Hollow. That's Sleepy a pretty Hollow. cool hot streak. That, that's an amazing run. And then like after the, like 
trying to watch his stuff now, you know, it, it's like painful actually, especially knowing like what he was capable of. But. Yeah, Skip Dumbo. I saw Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, which is basically like yeah. I felt like an X Men movie. Um, I skipped the Frankenweenie fe- feature because I'd seen right. the short. I actually kind of like Dark Shadows. I saw it on a plane, ended up like watching it twice. For whatever reason, Dark Shadows really entertained. <laughs> That's me. fine if that works. Yeah. Like I, I don't think like his stuff's necessarily terrible. It just feels like a shadow of what he was capable well, it just of. Just feels and like shrill do, like, and like yeah, like Charlie yeah. and the Chocolate Factory and things like that. It just and uh, Big Fish, I walked out of entirely. Right. Planet of the Apes was a total abomination. So yeah, just it's a, it's like a, a long, a long that, streak like, of terrible movies. John Schmeckmeyer thing of like mixing the live action with the animation because like people forget Tim Burton's background was as an animator so yep. like you know you watch uh peewee's big adventure and large march has that <laughs> creepy animated face like you know it's not like copying schmeckmeyer but like it, it was kind of comparable so like you know if you're gonna compare one alice in wonderland to another uh, i like the sandworms it, sort of, and beetlejuice it's it's great yeah, stop motion like I, he, I love that stuff like yeah. I, I, it's sort of too bad that like tim burton's kind of left that behind and his he's just, he's just a classic example of like an eccentric creative guy who achieves such astronomical levels of wealth and success that he just got completely lost inside of his his own mystique and he became a kind of like a cartoon character, like a caricature of himself. Like if you're yeah. 60 years old and you're still dressing like an 18 year old like goth kid, it's like what <laughs> are you trying to prove? Like when I saw Seinfeld last night, he's 65 years old and he dresses mm-hmm. like a 65 year old man. He comes out in a suit and he looks dignified and he still gets weird and makes you laugh and does silly things. But I, I'm always a little bit wary of people who get like they get lost inside a certain appearance to the public and they never evolve or change that, that look because right. they're always playing that character. And I think Tim Burton got, he got lost inside of his own bullshit. I, I think that's probably true. I mean, like now the spirals, the Danny Elfman music, even like bringing Johnny Depp All back, the even though he hasn't used it for like, a while. Please it's, stop, it's like, chill on the tubas. Yeah. We don't need to hear any more tubas <laughs> in your scores ever like, again. I don't know. I, I think it, it sort of becomes like death for a creator when you kind of know exactly what you're going to get from them before you even see it. Without a doubt, hundred percent. You know, and like it, Tim Burton. As soon as he like transitioned from being like an artist to a brand, it, it's like, yeah, that's it. You're done. Yeah, you're done. And like, it, and he's not try. He's it's, we're talking about a guy who like is terrified of risk. He hasn't taken a creative risk in like twenty years. Like to like try to escape that brand. Yeah. It's just like like maybe diminishing the returns and like guys. Just, but that felt like so slight. Like I don't know. He's somebody who like really could use taking a creative chance instead of like doing Disney live action remakes, CGI live action remakes. Yeah. I mean the fact that he made Dumbo at all just shows yeah. that he doesn't have a single thing left to say. It's like, why would you do fucking Dumbo? <laughs> yeah, he's done. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> That's, I, I don't Like, you always hope somebody's going to have a comeback, but it, it kind of feels like, yeah, he's done. But, like, I, I've got a similar relationship with Peter Jackson where in the 90s he was doing all this crazy fucking oh, shit. I, like, like, if you where's him the from, like, guy who made taste, Meet the Feebles yeah, and like, Bad but, Taste? And, like, yeah. Meet the Feebles through, like, Fellowship of the Ring. He's, like, on this insane hot streak. And now I'd rather get shot in the head than watch his movies. I know. I know. I feel the same way. Like, Lord of the Rings films, part of what I liked about them is they were, like, epic films that kind of felt like they were made by a weird genre guy. And I loved, like you know, the looks of the the Witch King or the, you know, like there was this kind of, you know, even though they were like big budget, they were like, you know, they had that, it, it's almost like that Sam Raimi sensibility. Like when he started doing bigger stuff, it still had that kind of like fun feel to it. And like after 
Lord of the Rings, like I kind of wish he had gone back to being like a little bit of a, you know, doing smaller stuff, but like he stayed as that epic blockbuster guy doing uh, King Kong and then doing the Hobbit prequels. I mean, the Hobbit and trilogy, it, I think, is yeah. one of the worst creative blunders of any major like, filmmaker in the history of filmmaking. It, it's, I, I like, I think it's more damaging to like the Lord of the Rings films than like the Star Wars prequels were to the Star Wars movies. Like it, it watch, makes me not want to watch the yeah, Lord of the Rings films. I can't films even watch anymore. the Lord of the Rings films because yeah. my, and my antagonism toward the Hobbit films is so severe that, yeah, I mean, people always think like you can't like that uh, like a brand is beyond harm or it's like impregnable. Like, no, you can you can absolutely ruin franchises. I, I, Star Wars got ran into the ground pretty fast. I think like it, it's always possible to tarnish a brand and to make people unenthused about something. Like the Hobbit movies. Like uh, just the other day, I was rewatching like um, the the two towers, the big battle at the end at Helm's Deep. Yeah. just to try to find like a little clip for something, and it was so good and like. The pacing of it, the rhythm, the rain, it feels the real. Build up and like, the suspense. The build up, the, like everything, you know, even like when they do have a special effect, it, it's not distracting. And yeah, it like feels when Legolas like, surfs on a shield on the stairs, <laughs> right. it should be totally ridiculous and stupid. You're like, yeah. fuck yeah! <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like, I don't know, like the, those Lord of the Rings films, they did have that kind of like real fairy tale sort of charmed like you know when you watch a film like v there's like a charm to the tactility of it and even when it does use a special effect that doesn't look real it's like engaging and charming and beautiful in its own way and it doesn't you know and then you watch the hobbits and like it feels so unimaginative and unenthusiastic and like limp (laughs) those movies are limp you know i I find them disgusting (laughs) yeah i i can't say enough negative things about the hobbit trilogy and what's funny though is like they're just bad because they're lifeless and dumb like it's one thing with like the star wars movies now where you have like a fractured audience where you have different audience members who want different things from the franchise right hobbit doesn't have that problem they're just lame lifeless dull uninspired like just cash grabs and i guess i don't know which is worse <laughs> but it, i guess but just when franchises get run into the ground i guess what makes it all the worse is that you're so invested emotionally early on that yeah. it feels like this incredible betrayal when you see tim burton run his name into the ground when you see well, it, peter jackson so run his name into the get ground. that enthusiasm back like they're talking about making a, a new a new matrix film right now with the wachowskis coming back and i'm like i don't want that like yeah. i've seen the matrix sequels like the first one's brilliant and then I got the sequels, and now like I don't want any more Matrix yeah, ever. Like I'd no, much rather, you. you know, even if I don't like uh, like Jupiter Ascending as much or whatever, like I'd rather have them do interesting failures than or kind like of go Cloud back Atlas. to that Matrix yeah, well Cloud and Atlas keep was trying bananas. To, yeah. Or if I'm going to get more Matrix, what I would want is remember when they did the Animatrix like anime, yeah. animated anthology. I mean, the, the Animatrix is a better sequel than any was of it, the sequels. There's like, a two part one in there. What's it called? Like Second Renaissance uh, or something. Second like? Renaissance. Yeah, like that. That's great. If you got that guy to yeah. come back and do like a feature length version of like Second Renaissance, like, Second Renaissance Part One and Two, one of my all time favorite animated films I've ever seen. Like I just, it's <laughs> so fucking cool. So, I love all those shorts. Like, yeah, I, I feel like that was the right way to take the story it's like instead of trying to go forward with this messiah story like i want to go like outwards into that world because it's more fun to play with like you know you sort of lose a certain amount of interest when neo can 
do anything and stop bullets and freeze time. Like, you know, that's the end of the matrix. You can't squeeze two more movies of him kind of doing that over and over again. Like it's it a turns like into the a super problem movie. at the end of the first yeah. novel when Paul becomes the quiz house Haderach. Like you think, Oh, well now you're the Supreme being like, where do you right. go from there? And the author's answer was, Oh, I'm going to dismantle him in the next one. I'm going to make him blind. Yeah. I'm going to make him you have throw to deconstruct off. it. Yeah. yeah. He completely tears. It's not like you just, I guess they more. did do that with the matrix. They made him blind. Yeah. They must have read yeah. uh, Frank Herbert's books. Right. All right, well, we obviously, I think, are starting to drift off topic, but I really enjoyed doing this. And anytime you want to talk about genre films from an Eastern European perspective, I love doing it just because it just shows that there's so many different ways to tackle these things. And I feel like a lot of filmmakers, they... They struggle to escape the shadow of the movies that they love, which is why you get these repetitious derivative films. And I like it when you get to go into a new terrain. You're like, oh, and like they don't give a fuck about Todd Browning's Dracula. They're going to do it a totally different way. Well, and it's, of, ve- it's very exciting. Like, I had this thought. I was watching um, – I saw It too, kind of recently, and it was trying to be so – like epic and grandiose and i'm thinking like how much i like just simple little horror stories that are like get in get out compact effective you know like yeah, again it chapter two was the, a disaster and it made like half as much money i think everybody realizes making a yeah. two hour 40 minute movie was a mistake also it felt like an action movie that they're running from like yeah, the, a giant there's only two scenes they, they in the whole movie that like have epic, like and they tried to yeah like the scene beneath the bleachers at the baseball game was suspenseful and scary and eerie. And I was like, all right, this is a Pennywise scene. This is what the whole movie should be like. It should not be six people running from like Pennywise as a giant, like knocking over buildings. Like that, that's not scary at all. That's a Godzilla movie. And it's like, you've totally lost the, the atmosphere and flavor of what this is supposed to be all about. But I was thinking like, some of my favorite horror movies actually are anthology horror movies that are kind of folksy. Like I really love uh, Black Sabbath. Hell yeah, that's I, one of the best. I really love Quiet On. Like those are maybe yeah. two of my favorite horror movies ever made. And like, yeah, obviously some stories are better than others, but like they're both you know, so goddamn good. I, I kind of wish like V was like the middle segment or the last segment in like an anthology horror movie because it almost could be like it, it's that kind of fast paced that you know you could drop it into a film like Quiet On and well, you I'm could digest it right and now. When Martin yeah. Kessler directs his first feature, I think you should do an anthology horror film of Eastern European folklore and legends and myths, etc. <laughs> that I that think would be fun. Actually, you would be yeah. the ideal person for such a venture. <laughs> I'd be down for that. Well, what do you got coming up in the near future in terms of FlixWise Canada, your filmmaking, etc.? cetera? Uh, I'm working on editing an episode right now on um, – well, it, what do I have coming up? Uh, Satoshi Khan episode coming up very soon. I'm editing that right now. I'm supposed to be recording an episode with uh, John Lobinger in the not-too-distant future. Uh, I'm going to be a guest on a couple other shows, so just follow me on Twitter at MovieKessler and I'll – post the links to all that and there's going to be some great stuff if you want to hear me talk more about other kinds of films and other topics that's a more russian film coming up uh alexi Grimond part four no (laughs) (laughs) i can talk about other russian filmmakers i'm I'm capable (laughs) 
just watch me. <laughs> well, we were talking on that recent episode about the descent. John and I were yeah. talking about how you've officially become the world's like foremost authority on that filmmaker. <laughs> like it's hard for, as like a film commentator to find fresh terrain where you can carve yeah. out your own niche. Because obviously if you want to be like the John Carpenter guy, well, guess what? A lot of people have already done a lot of breakdowns of John Carpenter. So it's gonna be hard to come up with something that like a unique take. I, I mean, I was kind of joking about this with like Chris Funderburg when I mentioned like, Oh, I, I like Mouth the badness a lot compared to event horizon and like, or, you know, I consider them comparable. And it was like, Oh yeah, like people think of me as like the the Paul Anderson guy, not the John Carpenter guy. Even though like I love John Carpenter, it's because everyone loves John Carpenter. Yeah, yeah it's hard to you have. Know? It's hard to create your own like, like identity. But although the flip side of that, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, um, Neil Gaiman was talking about when he wrote his Norse mythology book. Obviously, those tales have been told a million times over. Yeah. But he said, you if you can do it in your own voice, whether you have an original take or not, as long as you have your if you make it uniquely you and you're not riffing off what other people have already said, mm-hmm. it is totally justifiable. And he ended up selling like 15 million books of his Norse mythology. Right. Like never in a million years did he expect it would be this runaway success. But Neil Gaiman told those old stories in his voice and he made them live and breathe again. So if somebody out there wants to do a 10-part documentary series on the films of John Carpenter, by all means, don't be intimidated by the fact that a lot of people have already been there first. What I would love to do someday is something a little bit like um, Scorsese's Journey Through Cinema or, you know, Italian cinema. Yeah. Like, I, I would love to do kind of a documentary like that, even if it's not a film documentary. Like, it could be like an audio documentary for a podcast. But, yeah, you know, it would sort of have to be the yeah. right topic or, you know, like the right thing. Like, I thought, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of possible topics, but like every once in a while, I'll find something I'll get really fixated. Like, um, uh, earlier this year, I did an article for The Pink Smoke on uh, classic Argentine film, Hio de Hombre, which was like really fun to get into and learn all about classic Argentine cinema and compare it to stuff like Sorcerer and Mad Max and uh, Wages of Fear. And like, um, I don't know, it's just fun once you find the right rabbit hole to go down, chase that white rabbit, I guess. Yeah, like, uh, I'm emerging from a rabbit hole right now. Like I'm, I'm working on yeah. a, a video right now where it was 46 minutes of unedited audio as a video, but now I'm trimming it down and adding clips and images. But I decided to do a video essay on my top 10 favorite films of Cronenberg, but I opened with just like a, an analysis of Cronenberg, what I love about mm-hmm. him. Then I go into And it's like Cronenberg has been talked to death by a million different people. Right. But I was like, but I've never done a Cronenberg episode and I've never done anything on my YouTube channel. I need to, I'd done like one written post years ago. I was like, I need to actually have like something on Cronenberg out there in case for, for, for whatever reason. Somebody else comes along with the idea. Yeah, and so I, just, I went down a, a total rabbit hole. So it, I think it is important. If, yep. it, if there's a topic of great importance to you, you need to go ahead and just, yeah, you need to get, get the work done and get it, get it out there. Good advice. Oof, I feel like. I got a lot of life advice in this episode. <laughs> uh, I'm always happy to give unsolicited advice to people because <laughs> I, I need it more than anybody. It's but, not your baby, James. Exactly. Well, we hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you want more content, definitely hunt down my YouTube channel, Geek with James Hancock. And if you're just salivating for some Wrong Real merchandise, there's a link in the show notes for Wrong Real t-shirts, coffee mugs, that sort of thing. Uh, coming up in the future, I've got a bunch of episodes planned in November, but Paul Murphy's going to be coming back, and Stephen Simpson's going to be coming back, Leanne Kubich is going to be coming back. So definitely some interesting things on the horizon. But you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, all the usual places. But best place to reach me is always at Colbrex. But can't thank you enough for listening. Definitely check out these flicks. Definitely check out Flixwise Canada. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do.
You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. 